0: following message is presented by fellowship bible church from its weekly pulpit ministry we offer an expositional study through entire books of the bible one verse paragraph or chapter at a time we pray that you'll be blessed by listening in thanks for visiting we're here to enjoy a little instruction from god's word and then at the 1045 service we will have a lot of christmas music and uh, a little bit of christmas preaching as well so Looking forward to uh, taking you to the book of Philippians. But I've jumped ahead to a non-sequential portion, which is uh, exactly what we need for today in uh, terms of thinking of our Lord's incarnation. So that's what our plan is to do. Good to see you way back there, brother. Thank you. Well, let's give good attention to God's word this morning. We're looking forward to it, brother. Yes. Good morning. We're ready now to look again. In the book of Obadiah, we noted that in the first part of Obadiah, in the first nine verses, there's a primary focus on Edom. Uh, The message that is here is specifically delivered and directed towards Edom. So we saw those first words that were there in the first uh, verse. It says a vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. So that focuses our attention. That lets us know who the person is who is delivering the message. And it lets us know whose message it is. It's more important to know whose message it is. It doesn't matter who, as long as the faithful deliverer is delivering the the message and not one of their own or one that's been contaminated or altered. And so we have Obadiah, and he is that one whom God selected to be the conduit of the message that we find in this book. In the second part, we have a section we divided as, uh, which talks about, in, the first, in verses 10 through 14, it talks about the judgment and the reasons why that judgment came to them, the Edomites. A horrible judgment. And then in the last part, what I call verses 15, starting verse 15 and then verse 21, the last part of the book. In verse 15 it says "The, the day of the Lord. We take that to be the technical, what we call the technical day of the Lord, or the eschatological day of the Lord. The great day of the Lord that is not yet and is some way off into the future. We'll say a few more words about that before we uh, conclude today. So the announcement of the judgment. So let's just review the things that we see here in the announcement of the judgment that's going to be coming here. There are a lot of phrases which speak to that. One of them, if we begin in verse 1, says, Behold, I will make you small, small among the nations, and you will be greatly despised. That is the Lord speaking to Edom. And he is saying this is what is going to be your lot. In verse 4, it says, I will bring you down. Well, you know the bold arrogance of the Edomites, and they had stated that they thought their situation was such that no one could bring them down. In fact, they even dared to say, Well, who can bring us down? And God says, I can and I will. And so that's that boast, the arrogant boast didn't have any power to be able to stand. We see another one of those in verse 5, speaking about, it says, Oh, how Esau, will be cut off, cut off. A strong, boastful nation. That's verse 5, Obadiah. And then we see in verse 6, Oh, how Esau shall be searched out. How Esau shall be searched out. And that's talking about what was going to happen to them when the invaders came and began to wreak havoc upon them, how they will be searched out, that their treasures will be sought out. Now, in the next part, in verse 7, we find something here that had to come. We would say as a, I would say as a shock to the Edomites, something they didn't anticipate. It says here that they would be forced to their border, to the border of their land. They would be forced to the border by whom? Well, it says by allies. We don't expect our allies to take adverse action against us, forcing us away from the portion of the land where we want to be and fu- pushing us off to the edge. We don't expect that of allies. Allies are people we expect to stand with us, shall we say it through the thick and the thin. But Edom had come to a place where the allies didn't have any value to them anymore. Now, there a little phrase, and I've drawn attention to it, about these things that were happening, and no one knew it. It's almost as if the allies had changed their uh, position with regard to them, and they didn't know it. And so the allies then had become an enemy, while they still were being considered an ally. So Edom had found himself in a difficult place, a place it didn't want to be in. Then it talks about people who were at peace, also in verse 7, with them. It said, those people shall prevail. They, they shall deceive you and prevail against you. Deception. I think we know a bit about deception. It occurs on all levels. It occurs on the individual level. It occurs on the national level and in international relations and all that. Deceit and prevailing. Part of the condition of humanity is that there's a lot of deceit going on. And then it talks about those who eat your own bread, eat your bread. They'll lay a trap for you. Now that is getting to be the most intimate of fellowship and of a relationship. Those people who are the most close confidants, if we can say it that way. The allies are one thing, but usually, oftentimes, they just are political allies. There's not a friendship. They're just in a political position, and we can assist one another in certain things. But uh, those who who eat at your table, they are a different lot. They are the ones who you would least expect to put a knife in your back. But Edom had put itself in a position to be treated this way. And that's the thing we have to continually remember because when we read about the harsh things that would happen to Edom and we said this really does seem really harsh, it is these are extreme measures because I said Edom will be wiped out. There will be no more. Extreme measures. But the extreme measures are coming from whom? See, God has used these instruments, humans, to do his bidding, to bring the judgment to the Edomites. We know that. And we know that some of those ones and in Israel's history, they continually went off the path. They went off the track. And God disciplined them through other people. Sometimes people were more wicked than they were. But they were God's instruments to do his bidding. And sometimes they went beyond the call of what God had ordered for them to do. But see, God is working all of this. And he has his purposes, and he's accomplishing them. And those ones who are, whether what their thoughts are, whether their thoughts are pure or impure, God is using them as his instruments to accomplish his purposes. Those are things for us to keep in our mind as we consider some of these things. So I just kind of briefly went over that because I know we spent considerable time talking about those verses. And so I'm not going to take that time to repeat all that, uh, to go into that. But now, we come now to another section here, still within those first nine verses, where it talks about wise men. They're talking about understanding that is in the mountains or from the mountains of Esau. And then it talks about mighty men. The... These are in verses 8 and then the last one in verse 9. So what do we have here? Shall I say that they had, I think we could say, the best of what human wisdom had available. They had access to that. We may mention before to Job and his friends and, and Eliphaz being one who comes from this area, but that natural human wisdom, there's a lot of value in a lot of the wisdom that is that God has providentially allowed to be the portion of humanity. But none of that can rise to the level of being God's God's word. But he has permitted those things to be. And so that there are many times when there is wise counsel that is given by people who don't even claim to have a right standing with God. But they do understand certain things about his world and how it operates and all that. And so they, through the wisdom that God has permitted them to gather, Mm -hmm. are able to give good advice about a lot of things. We can look at some of the marvelous things that we have, material things that have been created by mankind. Of course, none of that can measure up to anything in God's creation. We know that very simplistic, the most sophisticated thing ever created by humans, if created is the proper word, but ever devised by a human, no matter how sophisticated it is, the most sophisticated of that is really nothing. It's like a, a grain of salt in, in, in a wash bucket compared to God's creation, the marvel of it. But to us, a lot of those things are marvelous. The thing is, though, that how were they able to do it and not acknowledge that God is the creator and that he has endowed them with this ability. Well, and here's the thing that's really quite interesting. A person doesn't have to know that God has endowed them with the ability they have in order to be able to use it. That's God has given it. Of course, God has his own reason, and there is a proper way that knowledge and ability should be used, but God doesn't make it have to be that way every time. So people can have all those gifts that God has given to them and misuse them. The point we're making here is Edom had access to human wisdom, and probably, I think it would not be a stretch to say, that they had gotten a lot of good advice over many years, which had served them well. But they had come to a place where that meant nothing at, all, nothing at all. If the battle is against other nations, other people, other men, and that's the limit of it, then I would suspect a lot of that wisdom would be very helpful. But if the battle is against God... None of that's worth anything. And so the best thing is to not be in a battle with him because you can't win. There are reasons that are given for the judgment that are coming. I emphasize it, and I spoke about it in two different ways or parallel, I guess, more or less. But it talks in verse 10. And we said, in this translation I'm looking at, it says for, and some of yours might say because. But the idea really is because they did certain things, because of what they were and did, this judgment is common. So in verse 10, it talks about how that they opposed or that they were violent against Jacob. Jacob. Jacob, their brother. Bloodlines these two groups descended from twins who began their struggle in the womb. And through their descendants, the struggle continued. Continued all the way to the point where God says, you're going to be wiped out, and there's not going to be any more of the Edomites. But I also brought attention to the fact that Jacob here is, is God's covenant people that God used the expression my people in reference to them in verse number 13 it is, so I don't think we're going to be able to oversize the importance of understanding that because God's project if I can use that term this time included and had to do not just with Edom or with Israel, but with the whole world. Not just in their time, but in ours too. But not only that, but in all the times that are to come. All of that. And so we, he referred to them as my people. God saying, my people. And these are the people whom you abused. To me, that's all the more egregious. It's bad enough to transgress the bloodlines but to transgress shall I use the expression the spiritual lines <laughs> the connection with God oh man the, the, the difference is like from the, from the lesser to the greater and the greater is so much greater than the lesser that we can't even fathom what the span is and what the span is between the two but anyway that's the way it is there and so he said, that's what you did. Now, it gives more detail about how it is that they carried this out in the next several verses here. In verses 12 through 14, we see some of, the, some of those themes. In verse 11, it talks about them standing on the other side during a time when Jacob was in adversity Strangers were carrying them away as captives. And Edom just stood looking on. I think most of us will be of a mind to defend our, shall we say, our family, (laughs) our relations. Who of us will have some invader come into our house? and try to take one of my loved ones and we just stand and gaze no we don't we don't operate like that you got to have take me down too before you can get him right if I'm present you, I have to go down before because I'm not going to stand and gaze but Edom did and God said these were your brother and you just stood and gazed wow that's quite a thing but that's what God said and that's what they did They rejoiced under the children of Judah. Their brothers were being destroyed, and they were rejoicing. How can you rejoice when your brother is going down like that? But that's what they did. In the day of their destruction, it says, I'm in verse 12 here now. It said, you spoke proudly. Proudly? What were they to be proud about? Their brother is in distress. And they're proud. They're looking at self. They're concerned about themselves. The fact that their brother is in distress (coughs) should have been distressing to them because that's your brother. I can imagine that... It's hard to imagine what, what it's like to be like that. I know the distress I feel sometimes when I read about and hear about certain things done to certain people. And I don't know the people. Never saw them, never met them, but it distressed me too. I mean, sometimes I just have to pause and, and pray. And But Edom didn't have that heart. They were the opposite. They said, Well, that it happened. But it gets worse. Gazing on their affliction, just looking on like a bystander, enjoying the activities that, have been, that are going on before them, as if they are a circus or something and they're enjoying the show. That's horrible. But then they also laid hands on their substance. You know what that means. They took the things that belonged to them in their time of distress. So what is all this showing to us? What is it painting for us? I think really we can say it in this way. These are showing what the, the heart of a depraved person is up to and is capable of. It is just demonstrating the depravity of the human heart. So the scriptures are correct when it says that the heart of man is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. The scripture is correct when it says it. Which means then that every humanity, every person, needs help. they can't get to where they need to be on their own because that depravity is there. It has to be dealt with. And whatever they do on their own to try to deal with it is not going to be sufficient. That's the gospel message. There is good news. God knows all about that. He provided a solution to it a long time ago. And he said you don't have to go down that road. Yesterday at a men's meeting, the concept came up, talked about all the people rushing down the broad road. But there's a narrow path, which is the right one and the good one. And there's a way to get on that narrow path. That's it. But Edom, God provided everything they needed in order for them to live a life respectable to him. But they made a choice. Shall I say choices have consequences? We don't know what the consequences will be for the various choices that we make. But choices have consequences. And the most consequential choice that a person can make, and I'm thinking consequential and A negative way, like what Edom got on bad consequences, is a rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ and say, I want nothing to do with him. Away with him. I don't want him. To do that and do it finally, that's a choice. But the consequence is beyond... Imaginable. And I said, these depictions here, these statements, details about what Edom did, guess worse? Look at verse 14. It said they stood at the crossroads. What were they doing at the crossroads? There were people who were trying to escape. Edom, brothers, Edom's brothers, some of them were trying to escape in the time of distress, and what did they do? They stood there and blocked their path. They delivered up those who remain in the days of distress. So they are going all the way to the extreme. And when you understand all that, then the judgment that's coming looks just, even from our, to our understanding. If we just jump in and look at the description of the judgment that's coming, it looks very harsh, and it is. But it's just. Because it's God's judgment. And he gets it right every time. In our court, sometimes it doesn't work out the way it's supposed to. Sometimes the ones who are innocent are found guilty by a jury and they have to endure the penalty. Sometimes the ones who are guilty are declared not guilty, and they go away without the imposition of the just punishment that they should have gotten in that tribunal, but with God it's never that way. One of the reasons I put emphasis on that is is that in talking to people, bearish ones, over many years many people want to upbraid God because they look at what is recorded and some of these judgments that fail. And they ask a question. They They, they, they reduce God to their little human level and say, how could a good God do that? Making themselves superior to him and saying, well, you know, I mean, a good God wouldn't do that. (laughs) But that's arrogance. Edom was that sort, arrogant. Now, all of this, the time of distress of the Edomites. So there is a question then that does come to mind. And so we say, well, so when did these things happen? This that's being referred to here, when when did all these things happen? And it has some bearing to how we understand that with the uh, dating of the book as well. But uh, I would say there are two primary uh, choices, I would say, or two primary, using the word choices, using the word choices yesterday, <laughs> and then I thought, you know, there's some questions were raised, and I think maybe that wasn't the best word to use. Maybe option would have been better. But some scholars will tend to favor what we call an early date, somewhere around eight forty-five BC, in the in the reign of Jehoram. I mean Jehoram, not Jehoram, but Jehoram. That's the one that I've tended to grasp onto. The other one would have been be around the Babylonian captivity around five eighty six BC. And so that would help us in terms of how we think the proper date another book is, whether it's early or late. Early will be back in the eight, 400s, whatever, and late will be in that five eighty six time period. So we take the earlier one. I want to draw attention to a a portion of scripture in Second Chronicles that Correlates, I think, well with what we see here. I'm not saying conclusively that this is it. We know that there are lots of different uh, times when Israel was in distress. But I think this section will help us to see that even within the text that we're working with, we we see something that that parallels or correlates with the experience and the kind of thing that's being talked about here. In 2 Chronicles chapter 21, I'm going, I have picked out certain verses. I'm not going to read through it all. I'll try to not to give too many of the verses, but enough for you to understand what I'm getting at. In verse number 5, it says, Jehoram was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. Now, if we skip down to verse number 8, it said In his days, Edom revolted against Judah's authority and made a king over themselves. So Jehoram went out with his officers and all of his chariots with him, and he rose by night and attacked the Edomites who had surrounded him and the captains of the chariots. And then the next part, what I call 10a, because I'm, start, I'm stopping in, in the middle of verse 10. Thus, Edom has been in revolt against Judah's authority to this day. I just wanted to, to, to hear that. Revolt up until the day of that writing. They have been this animosity. Now we'll drop down to verse number 16. I'm still in chapter 21 of Second Chronicles. It says, more of the Lord stirred up against Jehoram the spirit of the Philistines and the Arabians who were near the Ethiopians. And they came up into Judah and invaded it and carried away all the possessions that were found in the king's house and also his sons and wives so that there was not a son left to him except Jehoahaz, the youngest of his sons." So this, what we see here, is a historical record of a time when, when Judah was in distress, brought on by the Edomites. And this parallels with what, or correlates with what we see here in terms of the relations, they, they really were in a bad lot and God dealt with them. So that's what I'm going to leave that part of it there and go back now to Obadiah. The In verse number 15, we, I met with the words, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. And I'm going to reference Amos and read a portion from Amos addressing the same day of the Lord. In Amos chapter 5, verse 18, beginning verse 18, it says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. For what good is the day of the Lord to you? It will be darkness and not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or as though the, he went into the house, leaned his hand on the wall, and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? Is it not very dark? and no brightness in it. So, the day of the Lord. So what do we mean when we say the day of the Lord? Well, we mean a couple of things. We say it's not a scatological day. It's not a 24-hour day. But it's a time period. And it begins with a period of uh, seven years. The tribulation. And I think we can say that what Amos is talking about is that part of what we call the day of the Lord. But the other part of the day of the Lord is a thousand years that follow. When the Lord Jesus Christ himself will be upon the earth and ruling and reigning. So that the earth will be ruled in righteousness. That's a hard thing to imagine. That everybody will be brought to heal righteously. Justice will be meted out for this is the thousand year reign. So we have that for the day, the day of the Lord. That great day is yet to come. So then, see in these verses that are remaining that there are two outcomes but are referenced here. We said earlier on that we understand the audience to receive this message from Obadiah is Judah. Judah at the time of the writing is not in a good place. They need encouragement. And so there is encouragement that God is going to bring their opponents to heal. But there's something more than that there's going to be a restoration of Israel so that God's purpose in the long range is going to be accomplished. But in verses 15, 16, and 18, it talks about Edom. I'm in Obadiah now. And those verses, they're saying, for Edom things are bad. I'm just going to read some of those. For the day of the Lord upon all the nations is near. So it's not just Edom, but all, all the nations that are going to be a part of this tribulation. As you have done and shall be done to you, your reprisal shall return upon your head. For as you drink of my holy mountain, so shall all the nations drink continually. Yes, they shall drink and swallow, and they shall be... As though they had never been. And then in verse 18, the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, but the house of Esau shall be stubble. They shall kindle them and devour them, and no survivor shall remain. Eat them. That's their lot. That's what's going to happen with them. Look at verse number 17. But on Mount Zion, there shall be deliverance. There shall be holiness. The house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. The house of Jacob, how is this all going to happen? See, God is orchestrating this. God says, I'm telling you what is going to happen. And as much as God says, as I said it, it's going to be that way. And so it shows different areas that were in the occupation shall we say of the enemies of judah but judah is going to come to have possession god is going to deliver it to them now i'm going to read the last few verses here and they were in close for now and we'll come back and i think wrap this up and then find ourselves another book to dwell in for a while but let me read these last few verses here in verse uh, i've read verse 17 about the deliverance and now i'm going to read beginning of verse 19 The south shall possess the mountains of Esau, and the lowland shall possess Philistia. They shall possess the fields of Ephraim and the fields of Samaria. Benjamin shall possess Gilead, and the captivities of his host of the children of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites. As far as the Zarephath, the captives of Jerusalem who are in the Sepharat, shall possess the cities in the south. Now, in verse 21, Then saviors shall come to Mount Zion, the judge of the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. The kingdom shall be the Lord's. Now just one other note here. We started in the very first verse where it says, Thus says the Lord. And we in in verse 21 it says the kingdom shall be the Lord's. It's all about the Lord. It's all about him. And so the issue is for them and for us, how do we stand? in relation to him. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful that you've granted to us the privilege today to read and to consider these things that we have spoken about. Help us to know that this is your world, that you created it, And that is for your glory. And we are, too. Help us, Lord, we pray. In the name of Christ, our Savior, with thanksgiving, amen.